So we will we will create genetic engineering, and the result is going to be a race of pig men because some people decide they want to look like pigs yeah, yeah. you know and then there's going to be like wolf men and there's going to be some sort of consensual contract where the wolf men hunt the pig men and the pig men themselves have transformed themselves so they taste like pork i'm i mean this sounds like super <laughs> bizarre but this, this this stuff is gonna happen because we are messed up Hello, hello, and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Well, this week we have a fantastic show for you. Razib Khan is on the podcast. He is a, if you don't know, a master of decoding ancient DNA to tell us fascinating stories about our history, our heritage. Uh, he's able to find the echoes of ancient Rome in today's Italians, for example, or explore the mysteries of the steppe conquerors and civilizations. That's one of his pet projects. So if you haven't read Unsupervised Learning, that's the name of Razib's Substack, you are certainly missing out. He also posts on a wide variety of topics in genetics and hosts a podcast on the Substack too. Uh, Stephen Pinker's been on, Jonathan Haidt. It's well worth checking out. But in today's conversation, we obviously talk about ancient DNA, what everybody needs to know about the topic. And we also discuss dysgenics and the risks it may or may not pose, uh, gene culture co-evolution, the future of genetic engineering, immortality, and much, much more, I assure you. So do remember that supporters of the podcast also have access to the three special questions that we ask each guest at the end of the show. They are, who is the best critic of your worldview? What books should everybody read? And what is your most controversial opinion? And believe me, you don't want to miss Razib's answers. As an extra special treat this week, we're also going to be uploading a bonus 20-minute clip of Razib discussing the genetic history of the Aryan peoples. Uh, that will be exclusive for supporters, and it will go uh, live with the three bonus questions. Those three questions go live on Substack a day after the podcast is unlocked for the public, which is usually seven to eight days after supporters have access to it. So if you'd like to have access to all of that bonus content and more, you can become a paid ISF supporter for just $5 a month or $50 a year, and help us grow a new heterodox publication. But without further ado, I give you this wonderful, wacky conversation with a brilliant mind, Razib Khan. Okay, we are here with Razib Khan. Razib, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Great to be here. So I thought we could start with uh, you telling people what you think the most interesting facts are from your research into ancient DNA. Um, now, there are so many misconceptions uh, that I thought it would be really good to give people kind of a quick uh, primer, a quick rundown. Uh, one that came to my mind, I think uh, one of your top articles that I was reading recently, is the fact that the uh, Adaman Islanders are genetically closer to Swedes than any African population, which I think is, for many people, just looking at them, mind-blowing. But uh, what, what would be like your top three most interesting facts for people that are totally new to ancient genomics? Um, okay, uh, I think top one probably is that if, you know, this is not true everywhere, but in most places in the world, if you look at the people that lived there, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, there's going to be multiple turnovers. And in some cases, there's almost no continuity. Um, so the, the past is a lot more like we saw in the United States uh, with the, quote, replacement of the uh, native peoples of this continent by people that look like you guys. 
Yeah. I heard but, that's uh, a conspiracy uh, theory. <laughs> what? Wait, you're saying the replacement is real? All right. Uh, it happened. You know okay. what I'm saying? I mean the the open the Brian the Brian Kaplan's of the Andrashani people. Um, you know, really unleash something. You know, so, but um, okay. So that's one. Um, I think another one that might be interesting to people is that actually in the last ten thousand years with the rise of agriculture and multi ethnic empires, the degree of genetic difference between different populations across much of Eurasia, in particular, but to some extent outside into Africa, has collapsed because of gene flow, reciprocal gene flow. Right. So, um, if you partition variation. Um, you see a lot more local variation in the deep past than in the recent past, and that's because the viscosity has decreased. That's one way you can think of it. Uh, genes have been flowing more. So the third fact that I will say is human populations uh, have been evolving in physical appearance and other characteristics a lot over the last, well, tens of thousands of years. But so, for example, um, I looked at ancient DNA from Estonia. And I can tell you for a fact that Estonians 2,000 years ago had much browner eyes, and it has nothing to do with their ancestry. That did not change. What's been happening in Northern Europe, in the Baltic region, and Northern Europe in general, is massive depigmentation over the last three to 4,000 years. And it clearly has been continuing down into the early modern period. Um, Why, so, Is that selection? European... Right, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it was, it's, it's obviously selection, yeah. but nobody knows what it is. Yeah. Maybe we can like talk about hypotheses later, okay. but um, I think that's surprising to a lot of people, you know, uh, that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like people even, even during, what I'm trying to say here is like, even during like uh, the days of classical Greece, Northern Europeans didn't quite look like what they look like now. And that's not because of genetic, that's not because of migration. It's because there's been in-situ selection, you know, and this is probably mm -hmm. true all over the world. So those are three facts. Well, yeah, this is this is really interesting. I, I mean, a lot of people that get into this, they they start asking questions like, w "Will it be possible to um, one day say what the IQ was, the average IQ was in uh, classical Athens?" You know, Galton estimated it at like one twenty-five or something. Then he revised it downwards. Uh, do you have a view on whether questions like that will be answerable? Mm, so IQ is a little different because we're never going to give Plato an IQ test. Mm -hmm. You know. But I do think, yes, uh, they, I, I think yes, because um, basically we're getting a really good sense of the genetic architecture of IQ in a lot of populations. And once you have that genetic architecture established and a good training set, you should be able to use the training set on out samples. Yeah. Now, the issue with ancient populations is uh, uh, you're never going to test those out samples, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you might see some patterns. It would be interesting if we got enough ancient DNA across Eurasia and we see that the polygenic uh, index or the, you know, whatever, um, shows an anomaly in Ionia 2,500 years ago. Right, right a because suspicious. So I would think the uh, the ancient Greeks are at least sufficiently similar to modern Europeans that you could use some of the same, so well some of the same genetic variants yeah. would predict educational attainment, IQ, etc. Right, so you can't give them an IQ test, but you yeah, might be able to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, some of your listeners and viewers might know there there is some um, attenuation of polygenic. Uh, you know, prediction, but, you know, if they're in the same population, 
attenuation obviously is going to be much lower yep. from the training set. And also, like, I think the genes for IQ, I mean, I think they end up covering like a third of the genome. I mean, functional genome. There's a mm -hmm. lot of them. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, once you have a trait that's so polygenic, uh, it's like, you know, the, the space of possibilities in terms of the additive effects and all these things. Uh, I just think the genetic architecture is such that it's actually probably a relatively portable trait because it's additive as opposed to some sort of gene gene interactions, which are depending on other, you know, dependencies, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, I, I will say, I'll say right here, because I want to give some quantitative sense, you know, like, for example, like some of these like polygenic uh, complex traits, like risk of type two diabetes, where you do the, the trait outcome as an odds ratio or whatever, and you predict it, um, you know, so take a European training set, and it might be like 75% is, you know, 85 to 75% is accurate in South Asians. Um, and then, you know, goes down to like 60% in East Asians and then below 50% in Africans from the European training set, just to give people an intuition. It's not like the signal is zero, like even, so, you know, for example, South Asians are like, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, you shouldn't use the European blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but like, I mean, you know, if, if the de degradation is like 15 to 20%, there's still a lot of signal there, right? So people need to be careful when they say you can't test from outside of the population, because what does that even mean? What does population mean, right? Um, and there are population geneticists here um, who are saying that population, these demarcated geographical groups should just be replaced with some sort of score of like, you know, like on a continuum, right? Because ultimately, like, yeah, it is kind of a continuum, even though there are patterns like the Sahara is a big break. Yes, there are people in the Sahara who are genetically equidistant between people north of Sahara and south of Sahara, but they're very rare. Mm. Right. And so I think it's reasonable to say that the Sahara, that they're sub-Saharan and super-Saharan populations. Right. Anyway, but that's a philosophical thing. And, you know, I'll let you go along with your question. Actually, I was going to ask something else, Rizzi, but now that you mention it, people always talk about geneticists how there's more genetic diversity within Africa than outside of it. This is at least like a claim that I've heard. Um, if what you just said is true, how could that also be true? And is it true um, that there's more genetic diversity yeah, between I mean, Africans and within Africa? Yeah. Okay, so I, this is a project I need to do because it, it's really simple now. Um, you know, in the past, we didn't have like total genomes and stuff like that. So we had to use mm -hmm. proxies. Yep. So um, it is true on the face of it. And it is true on the face of it because everybody outside of Africa descends from a population that was right. highly bottlenecked mm -hmm. for thousands of years. So that means that non-African populations went through a massive bottleneck sieve uh, for many, 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 many generations. And so just to give your uh, viewers and listeners um, just like intuition here, you know, when there's like a sharp bottleneck for one generation, that obviously has a big effect. And I'm talking bottleneck. I'm saying like, you know, closer to 100 individuals than 1,000. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. That's kind of a big deal, but the, uh, um, but a bigger deal actually a lot of time is a gentler bottleneck that happens over many, many generations. Okay. And so people often think of bottleneck as like, oh, this like short term, like little, you go through the pinhole and you come back out and that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But what happened with the ancestor of non-Africans is it looks like they were isolated somewhere and they had a small population for tens you know, maybe like 10, one, one to 10,000 years, something like that. And that's a, that's kind of a big deal. Right. Um, and so that had a huge effect. And so it's not that Africans are so diverse. 
is that non-Africans are not diverse. Yeah, okay, that's And great. then some of the non-Africans went back to Africa and so, yep. you know, you know, within Africa itself there's variation. So the most diverse population, population with the most amount of variation are Khoisan. All right? And it's not because there were like billions of Khoisan in the world. It's because the Khoisan never underwent a very strong bottleneck. They went through a gentle right. one during the last glacial maximum, but it was a very gentle bottleneck. And so the, you know, the stylized fact is, you know, two men from um, two different adjacent Khoisan tribes, if you do a comparison, uh, so there are 3 billion base pairs, you know, between any two given individuals, something like 10 million will differ. Okay. Well, um, you know, you compare these two men from two different Khoisan tribes right next to each other. There are more differences between these two men on these base pairs than between a Chinese person and uh, Northern European. Mm-hmm. And so that's like a, ooh, a mind-blowing fact. But what you need to remember, and this goes back to the Andaman Islanders that you're talking about, um, is, uh, you know, all, everybody outside of Africa, their ancestry, except for the Neanderthal ancestry, the Denisovan, like a little bit of it, it coalesces back to this ancestral Ur population. And so the genealogy just like collapses 60,000 years ago, period. And so when I say that there's more variation between these two Khoisan tribes, well, what that means is there's genetic lineages among the Khoisan of the Kalahari and Namibia that go deeper than 60,000 years, which is totally reasonable. Um, the, The young, quote, youngest divergences for Khoisan are, you know, on the order of 100 to 150,000 years ago from the rest of humanity, which indicates they've been diversifying for that long. So unless they go through a bottleneck and they squeeze out that variation, uh, their diversity is going to be all over the place. And so they maintain it. Um, Non-Africans obviously have other types of diversity, like some sort of functional diversity. Um, You know, did the ancestors of the Andaman Islanders, did ancestral humans look like Andaman Islanders? Like, why do Andaman Islanders... Uh, you know, why do they have black skin when people in Africa had black skin? Well, maybe ancestral humans had black skin. That was the ancestral condition. I, I actually think they probably didn't have quite black skin, probably. Uh, it looks like, you know, places like Sudan and possibly the Andaman Islands where, you know, like the incidence of the sun and other things, yeah. uh, they're always exposed. It, it's like, it could be that these populations got really dark. There is like genetic evidence for selection in Sudan. These people have been selected for extremely black skin. So, but the ancestral humans were on the dark side, but it's really easy to lose pigmentation uh, in mammals or in metazoans in general, because pigmentation is a complex metabolic pathway and you can break it. And once you break it, you end up looking like you guys. Huh. Yeah. And I guess, sorry, I like to pick, it, pick on you guys, but. Hey, I'll take it as a compliment. Um, yeah, I guess the Sudan is different than a lot of Africa too, because it's heavily a desert. So there's not a lot of tree covering. You're constantly exposed to the sun, like you said. So I can imagine there'd be selective pressures yeah. in favor of sunscreen, so to speak. Um, I was going to ask actually as a follow-up to what you just said. So these bottlenecks, I can imagine bottlenecks or you also use the metaphor of a sieve. Obviously, like if a lot of people starve to death and now there's a small population, they escape, they move to a different continent, that's a bottleneck or a a sieve of a certain kind. What about some of this gene culture coevolution stuff that people have been talking about for the last 20 years? Like, for example, the advent of agriculture and people living in concentrated places where they all get exposed to animal diseases and stuff. Would you consider that a kind of sieve or is that something different? Like, does it fundamentally change yeah, populations um, in ways that other people? No, it is. It is. It yeah. is. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Just curious. Um, wh- yeah. So, yeah, um, 
Yeah. No, um, so agriculture um, has had a massive effect. Um, again, we have ancient DNA transects that show like all the things that you expect, uh, like diet, digestion, under selection, a lot of disease related things. Also, as you probably know, um, you know, humans became, I mean, Europeans got smaller, like farmers got smaller. Um, another thing that I've been told by people who study this topic is that skeletons get start to get really frail with agricultural people right. in general. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, I mean, building muscle and bone is metabolically expensive. And um, if you're not running around all the time, you know, you're just doing repetitive stuff and you're chewing on gruel all the time. <laughs> why do you need all that? You know, very British. So we, we kind of like, um, yeah, we level down. We level down in terms of just like our, our physiological toolkit a little bit. Uh, because that allows you to survive in more marginal conditions is my assumption, right? Yeah. So yeah, there has been gene culture coevolution in a lot of ways. Um, you know, here's one way there has been coevolution. Anyone who studied the ethnography uh, and interactions with Australian Aborigines or Andaman Islanders knows that um, they have some serious problems. Uh, they love alcohol. They love sugar. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, they love refined carbohydrates and then they die. Right. And so uh, I think that intuition of that, I mean, what I'm trying to get at there is that, you know, the ancestors of agriculturalist peoples obviously have issues with type 2 diabetes and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. This is a thing. Uh, but the initial one, you know, the beers and other alcohols were probably milder initially. Uh, the grains were coarser. So our ancestors as agriculturalists and like, just looking at you guys, you look like the descendants of dowdy farmers, you know, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the, but the point is like, you know, our ancestors, uh, they, they went through the selection pressures over thousands of years and they were probably initially like gentler, right? Now imagine you're an Andaman Islander. There's no other population in Asia actually, um, that are hunter gatherers that are, um, you know, uh, hunter gatherers uninterrupted for thousands of years for since the paleolithic right and so they're being exposed to refined cane sugar yep. and whiskey <laughs> you know like if if our if our hunter gatherer ancestors were exposed to this they would be like you know what i'm saying yeah that probably did happen like the romans actually shipped wine amphora to the gauls to get them drunk and messed hmm. up you know yeah so um you know these strategies have been around for a long time so yeah, there has been gene culture coevolution uh, in a lot of different ways. I'm assuming for personality too, but yeah. you know that hasn't been extensively studied. Yeah, and I was just thinking of bottlenecks, and that's an example where the Khoisan haven't gone through agriculture. Right, this is something. All the stuff you just mentioned, I think I first learned as an amateur from reading Cochrane and Harpending, including that stuff about gracilization, the idea that your bones and muscles actually get smaller. When you rely more on, well, I think they would say when you rely more on cognition to organize society, right? So you move away from the need for like physical speed and strength toward the need to coordinate effectively, to communicate, to think, to do all these things. I know that's kind of controversial, but I think that's kind of part of their view. And I imagine. Well, yeah. yeah so, yeah, let me say one thing about that. Yep. Um, you know, those of you who have read my Substack which both of you have, but um, is uh, one of the things that, you know, recurred over the last, well, basically, let's say between 500 BC and 1500 AD uh, is uh, the, the steppe versus agriculturalist conflicts, you know, really in, in high gear between 500 AD 
and maybe up until like 1500 mm. when the last of the major mongol empires were crushed so what happened here is you have the mobilization of a pastoralist population was you know that was such that the vast majority of adult males are excellent fighters mm. and they would go up against uh, polities against states and empires where the populations were like 100, 200, 300 times larger, mm -hmm. and they would beat them. And they would beat them because these polities had to deploy specialized uh, professionals that could fight. Um, they, they could not deploy, you know, their full, quote, manpower because the average farmer just wasn't up to it. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, if the farmer was disciplined, you know, I mean, the Romans had some special things that they did. But the ultimate reality is, um, you know, if you're a pastoralist, uh, you know how to shoot. You know, you're also out there in, to be candid, a lawless zone. You better know how to fight. Hmm. Um, the common practice for Turco-Mongol people to obtain wives was to kidnap them. So Genghis Khan's mother was kidnapped. That's still Kyrgyz practice today. Although it's, it's somewhat like symbolic, but wow. <laughs> I, I would be careful about saying like, I don't think it's always symbolic. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm like, yeah. not, I'm going to be honest here. I think some, I, I think they overdo like, oh, this is a symbol. They're just going through a ritual. And I'm yeah. just like, dude, like, why would you go through a kidnapping ritual? I'm just going to be candid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Genghis Khan's mother was kidnapped, was kidnapped from the, um, from the, I think it was the Merkid, the Merkid tribe. Uh, eventually, like the Merkids like took revenge and then Genghis Khan took revenge and exterminated them. So, you know, yeah. this, this stuff can have some serious effects. So um, the point there is uh, pastoralists in some ways are very similar to hunter-gatherers. Um, and I think so the average hunter-gatherer was not of large numbers, but they were large. They were often like larger uh, than farmers and they're probably better warriors. And we right. do see, um, if, you know, most of your, I mean, I, I know Johnny, you know, uh, you know, Lawrence Keeley, his work in War Before Civilization, uh, There, there's basically a record of uh, some sort of, civilizational war between hunter-gatherers and farmers in northwest europe in modern day basically belgium parts of the netherlands northern germany what happened is in general the farmers could expand and just use their numbers but on the north sea shore uh the marine uh foragers were at high enough density that they could fight back and so you have mm -hmm. this situation where there's a conflict between these two groups and also like um was conflict between groups that look very different uh, the foragers had very dark skin and blue eyes, whereas the farmers had light skin and dark eyes, you know, and the two groups eventually, eventually the farmers absorbed the foragers and, you know, but it took a lot of, a lot of time. So David Reich's uh, group did a study in Germany, which showed that the two groups, they, they coexisted, which basically means that they didn't exterminate each other, right. where the foragers, uh, they operated in certain ecologies and the, and the hundred and the early farmers, the LBK operated in other ecologies and genetically they remained distinct for about a thousand years. And again, their genetic distinction is, is uh, equivalent to what you would see between a modern Han Chinese and a Northern European. So that's significant. And like, the physical differences are just as I described. Phenotypically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, phenotypically. So the hunter gatherers would be like bigger, uh, like dark brown skin probably. Yeah. So it's often said that they're black skin, very dark. We don't know that for sure. I, I think that maybe we need to be a little careful. They might have been more colored like uh, Inuit. Yeah. Like brown, you know, brown skinned people, that sort of thing. Um, but definitely dark. Uh, but and their eyes were generally blue, so uh, they would look very different than a farmer who look would look more like a modern Sardinian. I mean, that's the easiest way to explain it. Kind of like a, a, a dark Southern European, but lighter mm -hmm. skin, 
Dun, dun. Anyway, or some so Indian, like, this is the world right? that was in existence. A lot of Indians yeah, look like yeah, that. Blue yeah, eyes like, and kind of light brown skin and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so it's it's um you know we'd have this uh these these conflicts between these various people are very very like different from um from what we see today. And yeah, and gene culture coalition was happening in the process. So here here's something I want to throw out there. Um, psychopaths, uh, you know, those nice. of you with psychology background, you know, minority of people are just hardwired psychopaths. How are psychopaths going to exist among foragers? Yeah. Yeah, good. I mean, they're not going to be able to fool anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. They'd be killed. Right. You know? Yep. So psychopaths are probably a development of mass society of some sort. Yep. Because you know? they can and so break this the rules is gen- and get away from it, right? They're monitoring costs. Well, they could run. Hired. They run to another village. Yeah. Go yeah. to the next tribe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, hunter-gatherer forager clans cannot, uh, you know, they they don't. So what? Um, I think it was Harpending, uh, his theory for the the Khoisan was supposedly peaceful. Yeah, like they didn't like engage in like big fights with each other. But if some guy, and usually it was a guy, was causing a problem, um, when he was out hunting, they would have like a quorum. And they would nominate someone to take care of the problem, <laughs> and the guy would mysteriously die. Yeah, you know. Love and so, like, you would imagine, like, someone's like a psychopath. Like, okay, this person's a liar. You know, they're insane. What do we do with mm-hmm. them? You know what they would do with them. So, I, I suspect that there's a lot of mental uh, phenotypes that has emerged in the last like ten thousand years as a adaptation quote unquote exactly. to opportunities that present themselves in large villages in cities. So we actually need cops and laws and all these things in cities, and we take them for granted. But, you know, like the Romans, even the Romans didn't have police, Mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of these like legal and institutional forces to restrain people and put them under rules are new. And, um, you know, most of you guys know about the Pareto principle. Uh, You know, most crime is committed by a tiny minority of people. Um, and you know, so look, m- most interpersonal interactions do not actually require a contract. Uh, don't talk to a lawyer about that. Cause they will probably say something different, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, most interpersonal relationships can be done, you know, reciprocally with a handshake, even if it's a non-iterated game, right? You can mm-hmm. actually trust most people. The problem is that there's a minority of people who you can't trust. And how do you figure that out? How do you, you know, how does that reputation stick? Um, it's actually probably easier today than it was in the past because the internet, um, you know, as much yeah. as we hate it, and some of us obviously have been smeared Targeted, and slimed. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but um, if you are a psychopath, uh, if you are a con man, it's actually kind of harder now. Yeah, to get away with it. And of course, through gene culture coevolution, we also have counter adaptations. So, as you know, famously, people give away a lot of their intentions with their eyes. Psychopaths have developed the ability in many cases to be able to lie without having some of the same micro expressions that others might have. So, so yeah, this is just a constant uh, adaptation, counter adaptation process. Speaking of uh, dark uh, topics, perhaps I, I can get your opinion on the, uh, the fall of civilizations. So I'm really interested in what you think about like the cyclical theory of civilization, the idea that civilizations often collapse because they go through this dysgenic phase. Um, do, do you buy that? And if, if, if so, um, how much do you think we should be worried today about 
dysgenic trends. I know, uh, for example, we've seen recently research published and given a, uh, a write-up in the uh, Daily Telegraph, a uh, big paper of record here in the UK, um, from, um, it was on Abdel, Abdelawi's uh, research with um, Dr. David Hugh Jones. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very, very, very uh, interesting researcher. What, what do you think about this this idea of uh, dysgenic cycles? Yeah, um, so I think we need to distinguish between uh, ancient polities and civilizations, which are defined by high levels of stratification, where um, the intellectual elite mobilizes with only a stump, uh, tiny stratum and d engages in um, extraction of surplus production from the masses versus modern civilization. So for example, the United States, everybody is everybody is middle class, right? So we, we deploy mm -hmm. and mobilize the massive talents of the greater civilization. So if there's like, um, so for example, dysgenics, you know, if there's say like a median decrease in reproductive fitness in intelligence in health, whatever, that makes a massive effect because we are a mass society with a bottom up democratic ethos. But if you're talking about a pre-modern society, that might not matter nearly as much. But we know that those – actually, I don't think it would matter nearly as much, to be a candid. Uh, but we know that those societies rose and fell. So I think there's two different um, issues going on here. Um, actually, several different issues. But like, like let's like bracket them into uh, endogenous and deterministic, which dysgenics would fall into category of, I think. And then exogenous and stochastic. So obviously, uh, any given system eventually will collapse because of exogenous stochastic factors. Um, you may be able to distribute, uh, define it under a Poisson distribution. So it's like a rare event with the same mean and variance. Um, so I think like that's one way you can think of why they just will randomly wink in and out um, because like external shocks, whether climatic, pathogenic, et cetera, will periodically um, go through society. And in fact, with the pathogens, there's a whole field of uh, epidemiology and uh, ecology that talks about how they rise and fall in a co-evolutionary cycle, right? And so if pathogens are a major exogenous shock, uh, the cyclical patterns of the pathogens themselves might actually be more important than anything that people do, okay? And so from a human perspective, that is an exogenous, stochastic exogenous shock. But really, when you dig deeper the, from the pathogen viewpoint, it's endogenous to the pathogen's own system, right? But in any case, mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the humans and endogenous human capital. Um, so there's an issue, like, let's just set aside the, the genetic aspect right now. Um, there's an issue um, with just social cohesion in Asabia. This is from um, Ibn Khaldun, I think. Um, mm -hmm. He was a North African, uh, well, anthropologist, sociologist, you know, of the medieval period of Islam. And his idea is what happens is uh, social cohesion is high in these desert, semi-desert pastoralists. They conquer the city, and once they enter the city, um, anime, like uh, individuation and anime, starts to increase. Their social cohesion decreases. Once their social cohesion decreases, they then become vulnerable to a next wave of conquerors. Um, so you can see this explicitly with the early Arabs and early Islam, where the social cohesion occurred through the coalition of newly Islamicized uh Arabian tribes like the Umayyads, right? And so for the first couple of generations, they ruled as this unifying caste that was bound together by an ethos and marriage alliances. But within a couple of generations, that social cohesion was gone. Eventually, uh, their role as, as leaders uh, of, um, of the Islamic empire was overthrown by the Abbasids, whose base was actually newly Islamicized Iranians in eastern Iran. The Abbasid Revolution of 750 AD was actually the revolution of Islamicized Iranians against the Arab domination. And it was very easy, actually, for them to win, because by that time, 
the original like the solidities okay of the arabs was gone so uh you know asabia was gone in their own turn the abbasids um and their iranian dominant Ar iranian ruling class was itself overwhelmed by uh slave uh slave armies uh of turks right so the turks eventually rebelled so you have this like cycle going through now did this happen because of like dysgenics the time cycle is too small right uh the selection coefficients would be way too large so that can't be that can't be due to dysgenics what what happened is um just the ethos of the original generation decays maybe an exponential decay function converging on like you know just atomization right and once you hit atomization it's every man for himself and once it's every man for himself boom right let me give you like another example um that's really weird but it's in my mind because what i'm in the tech space um i'm not gonna say okay so you know nasa can spend billions of dollars on certain technologies that startups in the private sector take three million dollars okay um well how does this happen well um when you're in a big bureaucracy you're making a lot of money your goal actually isn't to put up a awesome satellite your goal is to keep making a lot of money for yourself right and so it doesn't matter if the satellite goes up uh now when you're in a small startup it's different um there are the regulatory um, systems within the startup, the cohesion within the startup is such that like, look, if satellite don't go up, you guys all go down. There's a collective action problem here. So everyone's working their butt off to make sure the satellite goes up. And so their orders of magnitude cheaper, right? And I'm giving you this example because I think many of us have seen it in corporations, startups, and businesses where the business no longer operates to forward whatever the business was supposedly forwarding. It operates to maintain the labor that's extracting rents out of the business, right? And this is what's happening in a lot of early modern societies. You have situations where, uh, like in a Chinese dynasty, descendants of the first emperor um, all get a stipend. But by like the mid Ming dynasty, that's a thousand, thousands of people at really high levels of extraction. So they just had to like say, no, we're not gonna do this subsidy anymore. But the point there is, over the generations, any sufficiently well-organized uh, society starts to develop uh, these sorts of sclerotic institutions. And that means that that's why the society will collapse when there's an exogenous shock. The exogenous shock could be Mongols or a plague or a famine, right? But um, whereas previously it would be robust to the shock, um, it won't be robust to the shock uh, when the society itself is pretty weak. And this happens over 50 years to say, you know, two to 300 years, uh, could there be a dysgenic, uh, you know, uh, factor there? Maybe, but it seems a little too small. I don't think that that's the primary determinant. Now, what you're talking about in terms of today, that might be different. So let's say, um, you know, uh, military soldiers efficiency is, is partly determined on their intelligence. Well, if you just don't have any intelligent people to draw on, then you're not going to have a good military. Right. But that's because militaries today draw on all of society and they leverage the human capital of all of society. But in the pre-modern past, that wasn't necessarily quite true. Right. So a lot of the specialized things, the specialized tasks uh, were done by a very, very small segment of society. And most people were simply primary producers. And to be a primary producer, you know, you need a certain level of conscientiousness, certain work ethic. But you don't really have to be like a genius. I mean, Isaac Newton's father was illiterate, probably. Right. He was, a, he, was a, he was a prosperous farmer, but um, mm -hmm. he signed documents with uh, 
uh, with like a mark, not his name, but yeah. a mark, you know? So um, anyway, does that answer your question? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I thought that was a bit of a dodge. I mean, that that's all interesting, but do you think, I mean, even Darwin famously has a number of passages in the descent of man worrying about, I mean, he's expressing his cousin Galton's worries, but he specifies various mechanisms by which we might get dysgenic processes, some of which have to do with social welfare programs, which he said, yeah, I support them, but they probably lead to this sort of thing. Some of which has to do with modern medicine, um, et cetera, right? Or not paying the costs of- So mod the modern, the modern- Yeah. Yeah, the modern medicine thing has a natural, has a natural, uh, has a natural corrective. And that's yeah. miscarriage. Although, well, wait a minute. I mean, right? so I mean, you, that's the thing that people don't think about. Miscarriage. Well, well, what about this? What about, for example, C-section? So um, I forget one of the great bi biologists, of the 20th century, has an essay on dysgenics in 1965. I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, Nobel laureate. I can't remember his name offhand, but Crick. What's that? Not. Is it Crick? No, it's not Francis Crick. Someone else. But um, he actually had this. It's a bit of a wild theory. It's hard to test, but he thinks that. C-sections might have had an interesting effect whereby um, they allowed people with bigger brains to be born. And he had this theory that we had, we're generally in a dysgenic phase, but this actually saved us from this. Anyway, there, there's a, there's a, well, so three, yeah. three, three, four, three, four subversives in Brazil are C-sections. Yep. Yep. Whoa. But, but, but the point is like yeah. all of these things, modern medicine, welfare programs, regardless of the contributions you make, um, you know, all kinds you of know, divorce law, all of these things have to have some aggregate effect. And so maybe we can't prove anything definitively, yeah, but, 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 but what are but, your thoughts? Like do these tend toward dysgenics or, but I mean, but this is, all, yeah, but the, yeah, but I mean, of course they do, but yeah. the, this is all recent. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Right. I mean, so. Uh, again, I think the health thing, people have to be careful about it because um, until we can go in utero, um, the miscarriage rate is probably – because we don't have a very good estimate of the miscarriage rate. Like it could be higher, way higher than it was 100 years ago. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just know that somewhere between like you know one-third to two-thirds of fertilizations do not end in viability, and we're not, I'm not talking about abortion. Right. I'm, not, I'm not talking about like human-induced abortion. I'm just no. saying like – like something like a large minority of women who have the fertilization don't even know. Yep. Right. Exactly. And so abortions. like if you have, yeah. It, yeah. So if you have people who have, you know, deleterious alleles reproducing yep. or trying to reproduce, you might just have the miscarriage rate go up. I think it, it's kind of like a thermostatic thing. Now the other stuff, um, who has the children. Okay. So for example, fertility drops, uh, especially with women with higher education, with higher educational attainment and right. IQ and stuff like that. Right. Um, so that um, seems like that would be a legit thing to look at in terms of uh, who is reproducing in the future. Yeah. Um, I think we would be starting to see the outcomes now uh, because this is two to three generations down the process. Um, it really started in the late 19th century, but yeah, exactly. Um, you know, most people were still farmer. Most people were still farmers then, yep. right? So it's like, what if you have a situation where not where most people are not affected? Because like, oh, okay, like the British, like the Victorian, like you know, bourgeoisie were affected, but that's still like a small minority of the population. Yep. Once you have most people that are absorbed into this educational system, uh, being affected by uh, the demographic transition and stuff like that. 
that's when you can start to talk about it because the selection is affecting all of society. Yep. And so we're going to see it. We're going to see the effects of the 20th century in the 21st century. Now, yeah. you should be able to start to see it now, and it will probably be really, really amplified in the next generation or two. How many How many kids do you uh, do you guys have? Exactly. Zero. <laughs> Coconut. Yeah. Cities, yeah, cities are IQ so, shredders, we'll and so are universities, right? We've all seen the memes. Yeah, they are. They general. are. Yeah, and, and when you no, – sh- sh- yeah. Cities are sh- shredders of humanity in general. Yep. Yep. And when you when you just yeah. look at, you know, we don't want to just look at anecdotes, but you take your average, I don't know, rapper or NBA player and how many children do they have, you know, and then you take your average academic. And yeah, these are just single data points. But the, the point is you don't bear any negative costs for bad decisions these days. And indeed, you get rewarded by governments and even by social norms in some cases, if you have more children by by men, if you're a woman, by men who are, yeah, not, let's, let's just say not the best quality men, but. Um, mm. And Rasim, do you actually think that the, like the second part of the question, do you think this is a legitimate thing that we should be pumping money into? Like, for example, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge uh, faculties or think tanks, whatever they are that you know, deal with existential risk, should they be looking at this? Like uh, yeah, George sure. Francis, the geneticist, um, you know, uh, on, on Twitter, he, he had a blog post a few months ago where he did, you know, a back of the envelope calculation. And it was a you know, very modest calculation. And he said, well, you know, if, if global IQ goes down, say, 10 points by middle of the century or you know, 2070 or whatever, uh, we're talking about a cost in GDP uh, that is 10 times greater than what climate change will cost us. So climate change, he said, will cost us about 3 to 4% of GDP uh, by 2050. And his modest calculation for the effect of dysgenics was like 30% of GDP. Um, and that you, know, it, you, you can quibble there about how much uh, yeah. a national IQ point is worth in terms of GDP. But if that, I mean, even if that's like, you know, um, if it's 10 times better than that, it's still as bad as climate change, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I haven't looked at the model. Um, the main thing I would say, though, is like, um, you know, using a kind of an assumption of normality uh, in random mating in the population, you can generate these mean and median shifts, and that's that's important in a lot of ways. Um, the, the key, though, is, uh, you know, um, in terms of economic productivity, uh, uh, the world is, is um, I don't even want to say hyper, it's like uber Pareto. Um, so you, what you need to look at is the modality underlying the distribution. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like if, if like, if the assortative mating is extremely high and a tiny minority of super achievers is maintained in a sea of mediocrity, that is far more mm-hmm. relevant in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways than shifts in the median. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, let's, let's, let's talk concretely. Um, Jennifer Dudna and a bunch of other scientists around her, you know, like max couple of hundred, but you know, a handful. Um, there are other people whose names we don't talk about often who actually did help with CRISPR a lot, but, um, they created CRISPR. CRISPR was going to transform this century. A couple of hundred people are going to be responsible for a substantial proportion of the gross domestic product of the next century. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about medians all we want, but really it's not the median um, it is the handful of super producers and these super producers are not just intelligent. They have other, I mean, there's a lot like, look, there's a lot of like really, really smart 
high achieving wealthy cardiothoracic surgeons, but cardiothoracic surgeons are never going to change the GDP. Right. No offense to them. Um, their, their impact is not scalable, right? The impact that's scalable is people that work in, in tech and in science, in science yeah. but that is also a high, re high, re high risk, high reward proposition. Most scientists are never going to do anything more than build up a CV of papers that no one's going to read the vast majority. Let's be honest. It is a, it is an Uber Pareto outcome there. And the world is uber Pareto, average is over. And what really matters is the nature and the character and the focus of the tales, right? So. Razib, this was a perfect uh, segue because we were gonna move from dysgenics to eugenics and, or genetic enhancement, whatever you wanna call it. And you just did a really cool episode with Michael Malice. At least I just heard it a few days ago, I guess probably recorded it recently. And I was pretty surprised because Michael Malice just starts with, like why eugenics is good. And of course he meant voluntary eugenics, you know, the usual caveats. But um, yeah, it looks like we're turning the corner on this term a little bit. I'll quiz you on that later. But yeah, Doudna is such a perfect case of what you were just saying. Because on the one hand, just having a few producers of big ideas can transform the world. My favorite example is the German who discovered how to essentially take nitrogen from the atmosphere and put it into the ground which enabled crops to just like triple in productivity. One idea from one person yeah. allowed world population to triple, right? That's just one idea from one person. Now you take Doudna, Charpentier, people like this. And yeah, the idea, it wasn't even an idea. It was just stealing an idea from, from bacteria, right? Stealing an age old idea that bacteria developed as an immune system to, to viruses. Now it's not only going to enable us to like transform people, which we'll get to in a minute, but I don't know, you know, reprogram algae so that we get fuel from it, reprogram all kinds of organisms right now. I mean, we have this problem of antibiotic resistance and like the best solution on the horizon is just taking phage viruses and tweaking a gene or two using CRISPR and using phage viruses to tackle bacterial infections. And that's like a couple of people producing all of the GDP there. So I like that point and it's a good transition. So. What do you think the prospects are of gene editing and embryo selection, not just in terms of other organisms like bacteria and viruses, but for people, you know, so in other words, moving from dysgenics to eugenics, what's, what's going to happen yeah. in the next hundred years? Yeah. So hundred years is, is a proper time scale. Um, so I think the next 10 years um, we will come close to curing um, a lot of congenital recessive diseases. So I'm talking about ALS, yep. cystic fibrosis, other things like that. Um, those are going to fix, uh, you know, those are going to, people are going to work on the targeting problem there, uh, side effect problem, but it's worth it for those people. So that's going to be hit first. Um, I think then in the 2030s, um, we will start to talk about polygenics, uh, hmm. you know, changing the risk of type two diabetes, these other things. Once we start to do polygenics and we do, we have the technology in the 2040s, um, yes, I think we'll talk some enhancement, some edits uh, that are gain of function, right? Uh, like what He Jiankui did will already happen, obviously. Yeah. But in terms of mass mm -hmm. consumer usage, um, I think I would bet the 2040s and when we start to see um, people editing themselves, editing their offspring. Um, and so, you know, I wrote in um, the Genetics uh, Society of America uh, Genetics, um, a, a blog post for that many years ago. 
where we are going to transition from the age of reading to the age of writing. Yep. The genetic age of reading. So genomics allows us to read. Uh, genetic engineering allows us to write. And, you know, for most people, you, you need to read before you can write. <laughs> and so I think we're going in the right direction. It's good metaphor. Uh, we are kind of closing. In, yeah, we're kind of closing in on the end of end of the basic science of reading. Now it's just like, can we scale genomics? And, you know, my startup, you know, is one of the things it wants to do is take advantage of the fact that there's going to be like a billion human genomes in 20 years, you know, more than a billion, honestly. Okay. And then also like billions and billions of cancerous, you know, genomes from people throughout their lifetime and all these other things, right? Okay. So the reading is going to be a big deal and we're going to perfect that. But once you can read, then you want to start writing. You initially want to start writing short stories huh. Then maybe you go to novels. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm just using this metaphor, like you need to start simple and small and then people will be super chill with it. And then they'll start scaling up to the point where within the next hundred years, um, look, if we don't, um, if there's no Butlerian Jihad, um, I'm assuming that we speciation is on the table. Razib, don't you think, I mean, this has been what I've maintained for a while that we're not actually going to get speciation. We're just going to get within the species very different kinds of forms, including physical and mental. I mean, a good example is take all of modern dogs, um, probably more so than cats, and you just get these dramatically different forms, chihuahuas, Great Danes, but they can all interbreed technically, right? So do you really see like speciation as the main thing? Or is it going to be more like stratification, like cognitive and otherwise, where we're very different kinds of people, but we yeah. can technically interbreed? Yeah, but the issue is like dogs are domestic animals and humans determine who they breed with and they breed them together copiously. Yeah. But humans make their own decisions. And I can imagine a situation where the race of purple dwarfs yeah. is never going to get together right. with the race of green diaphanous, like yeah. big ears or whatever, yeah. you know, like we can breed our own aesthetic preferences, our, our own, you know, kismet or whatever, and we might do it. And then we're talking like fisherian runaway selection. Yes, yes. Stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I think we, you know, we might, yeah. Yeah. And you'd mentioned yeah. like the viscosity of gene flow can change. And I think you mentioned that right at the beginning. And that had to do with, say, culture. Maybe it changes because of a culture that has, um, well, cultural stratification yeah. where some people aren't even allowed to intermix with others. But then there can be just aesthetic preferences because of fisherian runaway selection, like yeah. you said. I think that's right. Yeah. Let me ask you this though. Okay, so you gave the time horizon, I think for gene editing and eventually I'm absolutely sure that's gonna be far more powerful um, than selection. But do you think like genetic selection using, you know, IVF plus embryo selection, is that sort of the next, that's like the most powerful thing for the next 10 to 20 years and then gene editing just overtakes it? Or like, what do you think is gonna happen there? I think I think if I if I had to I think gene editing will happen fast enough that embryo selection will never be uh I don't want to say not mainstream but it'll be more like in vitro fertilization. Right. Common but the exception not the rule. Mm. Um okay. that's what I think. I think gene editing is is a possibility of scaling um, you know, human diversity and modification in a way that's just fundamentally uh, more is, is going to be more attractive to more people.
um, they'll be able to see it with their own eyes, kind of feel it. And I think adults will start, adults will start doing it to themselves too. Right. Like, I think there'll be like millions and millions of Zaners because I had Zaners running around. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's going to, that's going to make people more comfortable with it. Um, you know, people want to like turn their skin orange and you know, <laughs> do like epithelial cell mutations and stuff like, that. you know, it's going to be, a lot of it's going to be driven by aesthetics, by art. Um, a lot of the weird zoomers that they say they're other kin are going to become other kin. Uh, there's <laughs> going to be like werewolves running around because they will like apply some sort of like gene editing a thing that allows their follicles to start going crazy. I mean, look, there are werewolf families in Mexico. It's a genetic disease. They have some recessive condition and their faces are all, they look like werewolves. Okay. Well, there's going to be people that are like, I want to be a werewolf. I mean, with what's happening in the United States today, yeah. uh, which I don't want to get into, but <laughs> there's going to be werewolves. Okay. There Got will it. be werewolves running around, you know, there's going to be people that give themselves like diseases there's, there's that disease where you can't be outside during the day. You're not necessarily an albino, but you have like, you basically your skin starts burning. They want to be vampires. They're going to give themselves that as an adult. I think all you this, know? all this weird stuff is inevitable, especially the aesthetic stuff. Um, and especially toward yourself, right? There's going to be some stigma. Maybe if you turn your kid into a werewolf with hairy faces or whatever, but yeah, that's inevitable. But like, don't you think in the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, let's say embryo selection, you know, for cognitive traits and that sort of thing, that's going to be, that's going to be the kind of main game in town. And then like later on when we can safely edit ourselves, you know, then we're going to get these kind of crazy aesthetic preferences and runaway selection, but that that's like a ways away, isn't it? I mean, we're going to see it before we die. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 it, cool. are you talking about the runaway selection? I think we'll yeah. probably see it before we die. If I, like, cause like what? Like, I mean, we're gonna live. Hopefully, knock on wood. Like, we're gonna make it past twenty fifty. Yep. Right. That's and that's that's you'll see it by twenty eight years. Like, look. I mean, like, what's happened? I mean, we're talking genomics is exponential. CRISPR is exp CRISPR. We didn't understand. Like, we didn't uh, look. As you guys know, some of the bacteriology, some of the microbiology was around for decades. But look, Cris CRISPR mm -hmm. was discovered in the year 2012. Um, I was in graduate school at the time, and genetics laboratories transformed in one year. Yeah. They dropped mm -hmm. all of their like talons and all these like other methods that they had, and they all transferred to CRISPR wholesale. And it's been like this, okay? It's been 10 years. Another 28 years is gonna be crazy. So do you think crazy? Do you think that what's gonna happen is social norms are change will change dramatically? Because let me give you an example. I mean, you already know there's a lot of resistance among ordinary people to wanting to do this. I gave a talk yesterday um, in Ecuador, where I am right now at the university, and um, it was supposed to be provocative. It was about human nature and political institutions. Like the, the, the end was, well, traditionally, the problem is to figure out what human nature is like and match the institution so that it's like compatible, incentive compatible, and we don't expect too much of people. And then I kind of provocatively said, yeah, but for the first time, we're going to be able to change human nature to fit our political ambitions. And, you know, people were in a way, some were like, huh, interesting. And the rest were just disgusted and horrified. And so do you think like, as this becomes viable, we get this like preference cascade where some cool people use it and then like everyone else follows suit really quickly or what's going to happen there? Yeah, I'm going to quote David Hume. Um, and I'm not, not saying nice. I necessarily agree with this, but I think it's a good yeah. descriptive. 
Cool. Reason is and ought only to be the slave, ah, of, slave passion of passions yeah. and can never pretend to any other office <laughs> yeah, than yeah, to yeah. serve serve and obey them. So, we're, you know, we're, we, are, we will have the technology. Like, what are we going to do with the technology? Yeah. Well, what do you want to do with the technology? Um, you know, like I'm Gen X, you know, um, I was super excited when the CIA's, CIA's area handbooks were online. I started reading about all these countries in the 1990s. I was like, oh, my God, like 20 years from now. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. People are going to be discovering each other and having like great discussions like this <laughs> online and just growing themselves. And all these geniuses will, yeah. you know, have <laughs> access to like the world's library and they'll be like Machiavelli going into the world. And you know what happened? <laughs> Most people are masturbating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you get my point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. They're mostly screaming at each other. Well, they're fighting screaming the fucking at each other about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're Bullshit. screaming at each yeah. other and watching pornography. Yep. Okay? This is what humans do, and so we will we will create genetic engineering, and the result is going to be a race of pigmen because <laughs> some people decide they want to look like pigs. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then there's going to be, like, wolfmen, and there's going to be some sort of consensual contract where the wolfmen hunt the pigmen, and the pigmen themselves have transformed themselves so they taste like pork. I'm, I mean, this sounds, like, super <laughs> bizarre, but this, this, this stuff is going to happen because we are messed up. Anyway. <laughs> this is a dark <laughs> vision of the future. Um, yeah, I'm, go ahead, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm I'm 30 years old. Is there any chance that with uh, genetic modification, engineering, CRISPR, whatever, that I might be able to live to 150, and therefore, if I can get there, I might then be able to use the technology well, of, of course, 120 of course. years' time to live forever? Yeah. Do you, what's my chance of doing that? How much money do I need to do that? Yeah, I mean, okay, so forever is going to be difficult. I am moderately optimistic. I mean, we have we have we're we're in a morbidity a recession, or not? I mean, it's not a recession. Unfortunately, it's a you know, United States life expectancy. I mean, you're not. I mean, you don't sound American, but um, the United States life expectancy has been dropping, yeah. and some of this might actually be dysgenics, like you were saying. I think a lot of it is just like, look, look at an average American. We're fat as fuck. It's no drug fat, use. It's know? mostly drug deaths, uh, actually. <laughs> Well, fentanyl, yeah. fentanyl with the white, yeah, fentanyl with, but I mean, even if you don't take it down, there's also like, I mean, come on, like yeah. the obesity and all this other sure, stuff. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, so we're having issues with morbidity, we're having issues with just like average quality of life, despite the fact that we're wealthy, and we can watch um, all the porn we want. You know, I'm just talking about like 20th, 20th century dreams, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but so but the point is, you know, um, I think there is an opportunity that in the next generation, for example, we'll figure out a drug that eliminates obesity. Um, so uh, there are arguments and theories about cellular repair, basically like going directly at the problem at the cellular level. Uh, that's kind of um, home run territory to actually like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. figure out how to prevent the degradation at the cellular level and do DNA repair. Um, is it possible? I think it is. I think anything's possible. Is it likely? Uh, probably not. But I think a lot of other things uh, related to, so for example, um, imagine stem cell technology and uh, stem cell technology gets good enough uh, that you can grow your own replacement hearts. Right. That's going to mean uh, a healthy life 
for like and that's going to add like 20 30 years on a lot of people's life expectancy right so um i'm thinking that a lot of people i'm thinking i'm optimistic that if we focus on the technology and keep society focused on the right things um that some level of being a healthy 90 something year old is achievable for someone like you okay I'm trying to be very careful here because I want to talk about what the what is like, you know, maybe 50% probable. I think like if our society is focused on this, we can make it so you, sir, uh, can be a healthy 90-something-year-old. And like, you know, there are people like that out there. It's too late for so you to be You know. We're too old. I do think it is probably. <laughs> well, I do think it, we are probably too old. I think I Dave is – I think, I think you're, bro, you're on the bubble though. Okay. You know, 30-year-old be on the bubble. You know, I think we're, I think there's been too much. Like, look at my hair. You know, my, yeah. You know, the degradation's already kicking in. But, I, but, I, but I do think that that's possible. Where we can decline, we can have a lot of impact on morbidity. Right. Um. I I believe in the next century, and I think you know, going to like around a hundred is very doable. Much past a hundred, I think we need some some game changers. I think there are a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that you know much past 100 it's just we can't our bodies just can't do it right now so we need to restructure that in some deep ways but you know exactly. uh we we have like some awesome technologies and if we just focused on innovation and technology um and fix some of our social technology that's messed up that you know hey, look i think social media is great but like how much money has gone into social media startups yeah. and what does that even what is that doing mm -hmm. to us? Exactly. And, you know, I mean, ultimately. We think of some yeah. of the technologies. I mean, you just mentioned stem cells and being able to generate. I mean, it's already possible to generate bits of skin, right? So if you're a burn victim, you can replace skin. You know, organs are next. And, and one of the things there, bringing it back to like embryo selection is people like Jeff Shu are working on, you know, taking, taking an adult cell, turning it into a pluripotent stem cell then turning it into an egg or a sperm. And once you can do that, back to embryo selection, you can then create a huge number of embryos from which to select. And even without editing, you can end up with like pretty transformative outcomes. So not to yourself, but for your children. So yeah, it's, it's, it's depressing how much money is being put into this kind of, yeah, social media, this kind of tech space, and then like effective altruism where we're giving bed nets out or something. But I mean, this is the real effect of altruism. We can transform humanity in a generation if we do this. Um, yeah, and I should add parenthetically, you know, if anyone is interested, I already know people who are working on, who are capable of doing genetic selection for IQ. So I mm -hmm. think this is coming online soon. I think that especially once you combine it with creating pluripotent stem cells, like we're off to the races really soon. And then you throw in editing 20 years from now. Um, we're going to be able to transform things. So, yeah, I hope, like you said, some philanthropists, some investors will see the potential in this because it's like much more interesting than another fucking social media company. Yeah, yeah. If someone's born today, Razib, so 2022, nearly 2023, right? By the end of the century, they will be um, not even 80 years old. 
are you expecting them to just be you know going into a totally totally different world where as you say once we can get through that 100 year marker um through engineering and changing um the key things that we need to change you know cognitive decline all of these things it's actually nice to be 130 and you're not like you know uh, just everyone's got um amnesia and uh, you know from, mm. from from the uh uh, the dementia, you know, it's uh, 30 years of, uh, 30, 40 years of dementia. You can imagine what that might do to someone if we don't change, uh, try try to address that. Do you think people born today will, it's likely, you know, above 50% that they will, they could potentially be immortal. They could potentially, um, I, I don't, I don't just, say 50%. You know, speciation. I, yeah, I don't think 50%. Um, I think I have a high uncertainty on this. I think the issue with immortality is, um, I suspect biological continuity is going to be really difficult. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's going to possibly be a game changer um, if we can figure out, um, you know, interfaces with silicon, you know, storage right. technologies. Do you, if you mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying, like if mm-hmm. that if that is done, something like Neuralink, if that is achieved, then I think yes, immortality, immortality as self, uh, not necessarily as body. Yeah um psychological i think some people are gonna be like oh these guys yeah i think some people these people are like oh this this is sounding crazy but you know i don't think i I think it's going to be really difficult it's not impossible but i think it's really difficult to imagine biological immortality especially in continuity of self i don't think our wetware um is well is is, it's not adapted it's literally not adapted for that like it's it's literally designed for obsolescence uh but Mm -hmm. if we can if we get ourselves into hardware then all bets are off. Um, um, there could be copies of you, um, you know, four billion years in the future in some galaxy far, far away, sir. <laughs> you know, yeah. if we can make that, if we can make that jump, and there are people working on it, um, but I also think people are kind of like scared about it. I think there's a lot of concern and worry. If you guys have read Dune, you know, there's a revolution against thinking machines and all this stuff, and you know, I can see that happening too because I think people are going to be really freaked out. Uh, what the 21st century holds you know i i don't say this as much anymore because uh you know i'm less a little less like sh- sure about human innovative like will but you know sometimes i wonder if this is the last century of homo sapiens technological civilization mm-hmm. and i'm saying that because you know we might be at a juncture where we're either going to lift off and transform ourselves into masters of our own future uh through genetic engineering uh, cybernetics, you know, um, the synthesis of our wetware with artificial intelligence. Uh, so the science fiction stories of the future, you know, might come to be reality. And, you know, we've been talking about genetics and biology, obviously, just because of our backgrounds. But, um, you know, if some of you, I mean, when I watched, I think it was Dragon, when I saw Dragon Land in 2017, I thought that that was really good CGI, because I could not I could not like conceive of a spaceship of it was a spaceship, you know, mm-hmm. it was not whatever boring words that we use to describe rocket. You know, that was a spaceship. That was an alien spaceship that landed on our planet created by human beings. So we are still capable of doing incredible things. And so we could do incredible things. The other option is, um, you know, kind of like regression um idiocracy. in terms of like there's a massive war it could be idiot well okay i don't think idiocracy because it's <laughs> not so self because like society can only live on brondo so long you know what i'm saying yeah. i mean like idiocracy mm-hmm. persisted like also idiocracy was a much more superior civilization in some ways than to the united states 
um, Hector Camacho, the president, um, he went and searched for the smartest man in the world, and he gave him True. the power to do whatever, fix our problems. We wouldn't do that today. It's a really good point. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, this, you know, you know, there are no because the smart there is no, the smartest man in the world. That's a problematic person because it's a man. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, our democracy. No, I'm just. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so we, idiocracy is totally unrealistic because yeah, they utopian. thought the IQ was real yeah. and that the smartest man in the That's world would actually do something good. Yes. Yeah. And Maya Rudolph was attracted I mean, make... to him because he was he was relatively smart. It's not not the norm yeah. anymore. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, people were like, I mean, like we do we do not have we do not have executives of the wisdom of Hector Camacho. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, the whole idea was the president of idiocracy is a moron, but he actually had wisdom. It was a meritocracy. I'm sorry that I'm ra ranting about this. Yeah. Yeah. He had. Yeah. He was like, he's like, you smart, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But you had to be bigger. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is like a legit guy. Yeah, he's not like a genius, but he's wise. He he's like, you know, I need to save my civilization. I go to the smart guy. Yeah, he might fail, but he's he's trying. Okay. We wouldn't do that today. Razib, what do you think about this? So I wasn't gonna ask this, but um, you know, Robin Hansen has this book, The Age of M. And that book, I actually invited him to give a talk to my class at Duke and the response by the students and faculty to him was like the response I got yesterday. Like, what the fuck? Like, who would want this? Like, this is horrifying. And, you know, the, the premise is essentially that we'll upload ourselves and essentially, well, it's better to just basically be embodied in a computer and live in a kind of fantasy world than to be an embodied agent. And I actually felt I actually felt the same revulsion that a lot of people did. I think like this idea of psychological continuity is something people want, right? Some kind of immortality, but not quote in the cloud, so to speak, not San Junipero. I actually think that people want psychological continuity with some physical embodiment um, and all the like tactile senses and not just the illusion of it, not like Nozick's experience machine. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's obviously true, but it's only true because you're programmed to. Yeah, that. yeah, okay, fair enough. That. Yeah. So if you if you press the button just out of curiosity, yeah. would you want to unpress mm -hmm. the button? Yeah. And maybe so once we yeah. can rewrite ourselves, right. once we can rewrite ourselves, uh, we will potentially open up the the chasm to the abominations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know. Yeah. No, um, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, uh, like, I mean, we will. I mean, you know, because you know, we've talked about inversion. Um, you know, what is, you know, we, you know, we have like, you know, mentioned like, you know, we live in this dark Kali Yuga type age and I'm not saying this cause I'm a frog Nazi. I'm a Brown person. We invented this <laughs> word, you know, so just yeah. for you idiots out there. Uh, but, um, you know, <laughs> where it's like, you know, um, I think like, what was, what was it? Uh, was it like, um, it was like some fashion magazine and it was too, uh, disgusting, like, uh, you know, moderately obese individuals mm. uh, of indeterminate gender, <laughs> sex. Yeah, and um, it was yeah, and it it was it was too I strong and beautiful modern. people. It wasn't European. Yeah. It was American. Anyway, and then it, sh but and it, it contrasted with like the same magazine tw in 1992 with like yeah. uh, just like you know male model, female model, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The issue, that, but the point here is if you told someone in 1992 that this is the contrast that they would see, they'd be like, you're loco. 
Yeah. Right? Like they could not they would like this is this is off okay. Look, you gotta be realistic. Okay? Like this is not plausible. You know? But they're they're putting things and I'm not trying to be mean, you know, because like, you know, we're all trying to better ourselves, but we have, you know, and this is what you know, some of Johnny's work has been about. There is like there is beauty, there is intelligence, there is grace, there is wit. These things exist. They're not arbitrary. They're not social constructions. They exist in our mental world, right? right. And that's because of evolution and adaptation, you know? Um, whatever. Like we, that's a, we kind of have alluded to it. Maybe we can talk. There's whole books about it. Johnny's kind of written a book about it, you know? Uh, but, uh, you know, imagine in the future, instead of inverting, subverting, you could actually design someone that um, idolizes the repulsive. Yeah. That as a work of art. Ugh. Okay. Now and some of the religious some of the religious and more conservative listeners are gonna be freaking out right now. I'm freaking but, out. Yeah, we will we will be as the gods. <laughs> yeah, we will be as the gods. Like yeah. we will have the tools to create the abomination. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no to doubt. create the inversion. Yep. You know? Yeah, cultural so, evolution um, can't be controlled. It's an emergent order. Like we can give all the fucking arguments we want. And it's it's funny because people often act as if um I don't know, whatever vision we have and we have an argument for it, it's repulsive. So they just think, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to make it illegal. It's like, do people understand? Like, you can't just make what people want illegal permanently. Like, th these things are out of our control. Um, we might have a vision for it, but that, that just means we can funnel it in particular ways. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, um, we shall live... In interesting times. Yes. <laughs> I think so. Good. I think so. I think, I, yeah. Razib, do you think then it's, um, you know, to kind of take this to the extraterrestrial level, um, a, a common pathway um, could be, you know, not just developing AI um, and the ability to, you know, max out your um, intelligence, but then once you do that, if there is a minimum minimal like a threshold level of um psychological diversity then it's just going to be a natural consequence of that that you're going to as you say speciate and you know once you once you know say there are a thousand different species right and they're, they're all you know perhaps they a lot of them are hyper intelligent they you know a lot of them have got ai chips in their brain i realize we're now super far out there um but they are you know some of them are werewolves whatever <laughs> they go and colonize the the galaxy right what we could then be seeing what you know, to, to us that's oh you know these are alien species from many different planets but actually this just could be a common pathway of what that's what happens once you can control your own evolution would that be a, a plausible theory yeah i mean i mean you know i don't know i mean in terms of like i mean you know we give werewolves we find werewolves disgusting but like werewolves probably look at us and like well dude like where their hair at? You see all their skin is gross. Yep. You know? You're naked. Like, it's disgusting. Your like, face is naked, like, Razib. Yeah, look at the naked skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Naked face, people. It's like it's like there's an alternate universe yeah. where hairy faced weirdos are doing this uh this podcast, this video, and they're like, Imagine yeah. that they mutated so that they're naked people and they shave you know what I'm saying? It's like you yeah. don't have to it's disgusting yeah and like one of them yeah yeah and one of them is like one of them is like you know there's a form of porn where people are all shaved <laughs> yeah 
and like you can see everything <laughs> as they have sex. Like you can see all their skin, and everyone's like, "No, that's like disgusting." You know, it's like some sort of but like there are a few werewolves who are like, "Yeah, they're into the kink. They're into yeah, this weird." That's, yeah, that's kink. yeah, yeah. Man. And so there could be planets of these like fucking ugly like uh, hairless people. Matt, you, know? you got to title this episode: "The Future of Humanity is Ugly and Disgusting." An interview with Razif Khan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Where, uh, hashtag werewolf yeah, kink. Werewolf kink. All right. Let's do yeah, some closing so, questions so, here. Uh, you know, uh, the, there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. It's exciting. So we've got one audience question that I should ask. It's from Eves Parhesi. I think I said that correctly. Um, when do you expect there to be a tipping point for uh, when talking about population genetics of socially valuable traits uh, to become socially acceptable? For example, you don't get uh, a mob, you don't get cancelled. Um, and he wants you to answer that for uh, people in academia and uh, the general public, 10 years, 20 years, etc. Yeah, it depends on where. Uh, I think mm -hmm. the United States will be the last place. Uh, maybe 20 years, you know. No. But I think that the current generation of postdocs and graduate students are kind of communists, so yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a while. Uh, so probably 20, 20 years in the United States, earlier or elsewhere. General public will be earlier than academics. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that there's truths out there, and the truths will be discovered. Um, as long as the werewolf hordes aren't overwhelming civilization, you know, I mean, there's other exigencies that might kick in, but mm -hmm. you know, in other countries, like you can do the analyses is only America capable of doing science. Well, if America won't do science, other places will. Yep. That's mm -hmm. how it is. Two, two follow-up questions then, uh, mm -hmm. of my own to that. Um, do you, do you hold, so you say like 20 years, do you hold much stock in the idea that because, um, political attitudes are like most things, um, largely heritable, um, we will soon, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, uh, conservatives will outbreed uh, liberals. And, you know, as Eric Kaufman said, the religious, the, the religious shall inherit the earth. Yeah, I, I've hung out with Eric. He's cool. Um, so, um, so they're not largely heritable in terms of genetics. Yeah. They're less than 50% heritable, right. last I checked. It's like point three. But um, they're substantial. Yeah. Yeah. They're substantially heritable. And then of course there's the um cultural inheritance heritability, right? You're talking about heritability genetically, which is yeah. distinct. Mm -hmm. Um so I find it very persuasive, but um the main issue is uh the other groups are very good at peeling off surplus. So, you know, and I pointed this out to Brian Kaplan many years ago. In the early 19th century, Republican, French secularist Republicans were worried about the high fertility of the large numbers of Catholic immigrants, especially from Poland and Spain and Italy into yep. France in the 1830s. But what ended up happening is uh, the children of the Catholics were converted. So I, I'm broadly persuaded that that's a plausible trajectory but it's never a slam dunk as people say because mm -hmm. we have enough history to show that you know um the the future can be easily converted and subverted so to speak um israel might be a case where that's happening and it's beyond the point of no return where it looks like a mm -hmm. permanent right-wing majority and the left is really what used to be the old center right and part mm -hmm. of this is just due to the high reproductive value of the 
national um, re religious nationalists and the ultra orthodox the Haredi. Um, so most of the young people, young people in Israel, are much more right wing than say senior citizens, and partly of just just due to the decline of the secularist Ashkenazi uh, ascendancy of the twentieth century. Uh, parts of Europe seem to be a little bit like this. So uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see. But um, you know, individualism, self actualization is very attractive to a lot of people, um, and in particular conservative societies, it's much more attractive. So you have a frequency defended cyclical. Uh, pattern where you go through kind of liberalism, individualism of late enlightenment, and then it shifts more towards conservatism during the Regency and Victorianism. It's become much more conservative society where, you know, you know, there's a lot of prostitution and other things, but, you know, these are indulgences. You have to be discreet. The social norm is extremely mm -hmm. strict. Mm -hmm. And then after the Victorians, there was kind of a reaction to that after World War II, there was a reaction to like the bourgeois morality. And then there was a shift back during the Reagan era. And so mm -hmm. I think we go through cycles. And um, right now I feel like uh, social and cultural liberalism is starting to unwind so much of society that a lot of people are being revolted by it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I can imagine a scenario 30 to 40 years from now after uh you know 10 to 20 years of a reaction where people are like bro like this is just like stifling yep you know and then mm -hmm. we uncork yeah. you know the bottle again and we just go through that cycle so yeah and i guess technologies yeah. it's interesting technologies yeah. can change these like obviously social media led from all these bad ideas on campus they led them to just spread instantaneously through the media in the 2010s and yeah, I mean, maybe some of the technology we've discussed in the 2030s and 40s is going to be so disruptive that it mm -hmm. actually is a kind of exogenous shock in the same way Genghis Khan was, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. It's, it's my, interesting yeah. what you were saying as well about like how, how um, it, it's society, societies are knotty, complex things, right? So even if you look at, for example, Japan, this... Yeah. Um, very you know, mono-ethnic, uh, traditional uh, culture. You, know, you you see these photos of people queuing for the train, right? Very, very different um, culture to uh, America or even or even the UK where we love a good queue. Um, but you, you, so you could think of that as a quite a conservative uh, country. But then if you look at their human rights record, uh, they have a, apparently a massive problem with human trafficking, like 200,000 women coming in a year, like, you know, trafficked in from like Thailand or something to mm -hmm. be sex slaves, which is obviously the, you know, you could say the diametrical opposite of uh, conservative. conservative sexual yeah. morality. So I, I think it's really hard to draw these lines. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, Japan is like the home of like tentacle porn. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. buy used. I heard, I heard about that on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read about that on the internet. Yeah. Obviously you're not familiar. Yeah. Don't, with don't it. check his uh, yeah. search history. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Three special questions then, Razib. This is for our, our supporters. Um, can you name the person, the critic of your worldview whom you most respect and you would recommend reading? Yeah, um, so I was thinking about this. And as always, if you would like to hear our guest responses, then you can become an ISF paid subscriber on Substack for just $5 a month. But here's a little teaser for you. Well, here, here's something like, you know, I've said some things about like, <laughs> 
um, you know, human variation. And- Gain early access to our podcasts, our three special questions, and much more. Heterodox publications cannot survive without your support. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please join the ISF community today. This is, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. Great talking Thank to you, you. guys.